Take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 20 as we continue on tonight in the, in the book of Judges. Judges 20 obviously follows on the heels of Judges 19. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we saw in Judges 19 the unfortunate incident of this Levite and his concubine traveling through, through Gibeah of Benjamin. And so the, the rape and ultimate death referred to as a murder of this woman. And the Levite had chopped up her body and sent her body parts throughout all of Israel. And chapter 20 picks up where just after this man had, had sent the body parts throughout all of Israel. And so chapter 20 is, is kind of long, so we're going we're gonna to break up the, the reading tonight. And let's look, let's look first then to the, the first 17 verses of the chapter. Our historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, the chiefs of all the people Even of all the tribes of Israel took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died, and I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and one hundred out of a thousand, and one thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people, that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. The sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah, to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Then the men of Israel... Besides, Benjamin were numbered, 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Now, this text picks up here in verse 1 where we see all of Israel 
having seen these, these bloody body parts of this woman that were sent throughout the land. And so from Dan to Beersheba, even Gilead across the Jordan River, they all turn out and assemble as one man at Mizpah. Benjamin had also been told, but they did not go up. And the Israelites inquire about this Levite, how the wickedness took place, and then he gives this brief rundown of the events. Verses 4 through 6 asks for their advice and counsel about where do we go from here in verse 7. And just as they had assembled at one man, as one man, so also according to verse 8, the people arose as one man, laid out the plan as to how they were going to deal with the problem. They're going to go up against Gibeah. They're going to have one-tenth of their force to serve as a supply line for the coming campaign. And they are, in the words of verse 10, going to come to Gibeah of Benjamin in order to punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. And yet again, notice the great unity specified in verse 11. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. There's this great unity. They all, at least all of the other tribes, recognize the great wickedness that has taken place. They're united in their purpose, and they're going to jump in and deal with this. They're ready to jump in to the fray and bring these evildoers to justice. And their quarrel initially is just with the wicked men of the town of Gibeah. They entreat the tribe of Benjamin to give these people over to us. Their quarrel is not with Benjamin as a whole. Their quarrel is with Gibeah. They entreat the tribe of Benjamin, verses 12 and 13, to give Gibeah over to them so that justice may be enforced. But as we all know, blood ties sometimes run very deep. It was reportedly an old saying in Scotland, show me your kin and I will show you your law. And so it was here, apparently, in Benjamin. The Benjaminites refused to listen. Not only do they fail to help Israel in executing justice, they gather themselves together to fight for the wicked men of Gibeah. The men of Gibeah are 700. Their fellow Benjaminites who come to defend them are 26,000. So altogether you've got 26,700 men. And you have among them an elite 700 who are left-handed, sharp shooters with slings. Now some have thought the significance of them being left-handed might lay in the fact that normally folks would be prepared to defend against a right-handed slinger. And so if you've got a left-handed slinger, you might not be preparing for a stone coming at you from that angle. And so they might be able to shoot at you from a different angle than what you were prepared for. At any rate, it's clear that these are skillful men, therefore valuable to have on your side these are sharpshooters, and that's an especially valuable asset when you're outnumbered nearly 15 to 1. Those are, those are the odds here, 26,700 on the side of Benjamin to 400,000 on the side of Israel. But what we have here in these verses, especially in Benjamin's response to the situation, is what we might call tribalism. Right? Tribalism has been defined as strong loyalty to one's tribe, party, or group. And this is literally what is going on here. The Benjaminites rally to the defense of Gibeah. The men of Gibeah, of course, are Benjaminites. It was Gibeah of Benjamin where this crime took place. So there's obviously this, this family and tribal connection. And the Benjaminites are the only tribe to rally to the defense of Gibeah. It's tribalism. This is the mentality that says, these are my people. I'm going to stick with them, I'm going to defend them, and I'm going to do so 
whether they are right or wrong. I'll stick with them and defend them regardless of the facts. Now, what should we, what should we make of this? Because on the one hand, there is something to be said for loyalty and devotion. Loyalty and devotion are not bad characteristics in themselves. But, with that said, loyalty and devotion must be exercised with regard to truth and justice. If loyalty and devotion are not exercised with a view to truth and righteousness, they will be then put to the service of partiality, as they were here. Godly loyalty and godly devotion don't defend someone and back him just simply because that someone is our man. He's on our side. He's in the family. We'll stand up for him, go to bat for him, carry water for him, or whatever, just because he's our man. I heard a, heard a story from a pastor about someone in his congregation who told him in so many words that he felt like you always ought to back the pastor. You always ought to take the pastor's side, in other words. And the pastor told him that in so many words... He didn't think you ought to always take the pastor's side. In other words, if the pastor sins, you don't back the pastor. You don't defend him just because he is the pastor. And that's true. And this applies to our relationships all across the board. You stand with someone and defend them because of the truth and because of what is right. You don't just defend someone because you're related to them or because you like them or because you've been strongly influenced by them or because you hope to derive some benefit from them if they come out on the top. To engage in that kind of behavior is simply defending the tribe, defending the brand, or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. And whatever you call it, it's not good. And this is what Benjamin was doing here, and they were clearly wrong. This is the kind of behavior that enables evildoers to continue on in their wickedness. It helps to put a mask on evil and pretend as if the evil is not present at all. And let's be honest, this is a big problem. This is a problem in the world at large when people go to bat for someone and try to defend them against charges of wickedness or brush it aside as if nothing ever happened. And this is sometimes also a problem in the church or in Christian institutions. Charges of some sinful conduct are made and then the bandwagon can sometimes be piled onto pretty high with defenders who actually shouldn't be so quick to... Uh, pile on the bandwagon. Some of those defenders might have something to gain if their defense is successful. They might have something to lose if their defense is unsuccessful. Sometimes they may feel like they have to pile on and defend the person for the sake of maintaining the credibility of the institution, right? We don't want Christians and institutions to fall into disfavor in the eyes of the world. We don't want the church to be shamed. And so we feel like, well, this person's been charged. We've got to defend him. He's got to be proven innocent, Tribalism is not a virtue. We shouldn't be announcing the innocence of those of whose innocence we have not been convinced by a plain presentation of the facts. Now, having said all of that, which is true, I do feel compelled also to offer a caution against the opposite extreme as well, because that opposite extreme also runs rampant in our culture. And that opposite extreme is the tendency to cancel everyone or to blow up anything simply on the basis of an allegation or simply on the basis of a charge. Allegations and charges, it must be remembered, are different than judicial decisions. Anyone can allege anything at any time. And if allegations and charges are simply believed and acted upon as if they were pure truth without a judicial inquiry and a 
judicial process, then there is no end to the destruction that can result. And so while, while tribalism in regard to defending the guilty certainly a problem that has to be avoided, we must also make sure that we don't abandon due process because in the Bible there are such people who deserve the name of false witnesses, right? There, there is such a thing as a false witness. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. And so we read also in Exodus 23, 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. We read in Proverbs 18.5, To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. And similarly, Isaiah, Isaiah 5.23 denounces those who justify the wicked for a bribe and who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And there are two sides going on there, two sides to be avoided. You don't justify the wicked, nor do you take away the rights of the one who is in the right. can't do either one of those. The correct antidote for defensive tribalism is not simply to believe all allegations that are ever made and make judgment simply on the basis of what has been charged. The correct antidote for defensive tribalism is judicial due process. The law in the Old Testament laid out the process that was to be employed in the case of a city that had given itself over to idolatry. And I think that process is quite instructive to us. And so if you would flip with me back a few pages from Judges back to Deuteronomy 13. And if you look at Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 18, we have the, the process there that they are to work through if a city gives itself over to idolatry. And so Moses says, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, Anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, and it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase, just as he has sworn to your fathers." If you listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments, which I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. So that's the, that's the process. There was, there was to be an, an inquiry that was made, and then they were to act on the basis of the facts. And there's a similar process laid out in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7. We're not going to, to read that entire passage, but Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7 was to be followed in the case of individuals who had gone over into idolatry. And I think it's especially worthy of our attention that here Deuteronomy 13, 14 required that they should investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And then that verse continues by saying, if it is true, if it's true, then you proceed. 
You see the same thing in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17.4, You shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true, and the thing that is certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, in other words, you inquire thoroughly, and then you proceed. And in the case of an individual sinner that's laid out there in Deuteronomy 17, you needed two or three witnesses to put someone to death, and those witnesses had to be the first to throw the stones when it came time to execute those guilty of idolatry. The point is, is that the, the antidote to this defensive tribalism, defending someone at any cost, is not simply believing all accusations and acting on accusations, but rather judicial due process. You make inquiry, and then you move forward. Now, as to the distinction between tribalism on the one hand and godly loyalty and devotion on the other hand, I think that godly Jonathan provides us with an excellent example of someone who, on the one hand, eschewed tribalism, but on the other hand, showed us a good example of appropriate devotion and loyalty. Just try putting yourself in Jonathan's shoes. Jonathan, obviously, is the son of King Saul. King Saul has a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and Jonathan knows about it. Jonathan does not defend his father on account of his mistakes and his sins. He doesn't join with his father when his father is seeking to kill David. Just think of how easy it would have been as the son of the king, to look out for his own interests and therefore to defend his father and to take his father's side. But he doesn't do that. He warns David. He helps David get away to safety. He shows himself, on the one hand, to be a a loyal and devoted friend to David. And we see this, you know, in one of the great examples in 1 Samuel 23, and Jonathan sneaks away to the wilderness of Ziph, and he, he strengthens David's hand in God, and he says to David, Do not be afraid because of the hand of Saul, my father. It will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. Jonathan could have stuck with the family brand. And if he did, wow, he could have had an amazing, easy opportunity to assassinate David, act like his friend, and... Given the knife, that kind of stuff happened back in Israel, back in the day. Just read First and Second Samuel and you'll see what I mean. But Jonathan did not do that. He chose godly loyalty and submission to the will of God and what was right. And the really striking thing about Jonathan is that his godly loyalty went both ways. Not, as, not only is he a godly, loyal, and devoted friend to David, he's also a loyal and devoted son of to King Saul. He doesn't, doesn't defend Saul in his wickedness, doesn't join Saul in his wickedness. But he is a loyal son and a faithful prince of Israel. And as a son of Saul and a prince of Israel and a soldier of Israel, he died with his father fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Jonathan's not going to, to defend or support his father's wickedness, but at the same time, he's still loyal to his father in a right way and honored him with appropriate devotion, as was evidenced by the way in which he died. Now, the men of Benjamin here in our text are doing nothing of the sort. They simply wanted to stick with their kinsmen, keep them out of trouble, regardless of the cost, regardless of the odds. And the cost was high, as we'll see. It's just about the entire tribe of them. So let's look ahead then to the remainder of the chapter. We'll pick up reading there in verse 18. Now, the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. 
The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day, 22,000 men of Israel. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. The sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? The Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. The sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city, and they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. The sons of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us, as at the first. But the sons of Israel said, Let us flee, that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel arose from their place, and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Marah Geba. When ten thousand choice men from all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce. But Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. When the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin, because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah, The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in the ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. Then the men of Israel turned in the battle, and Benjamin began to strike and kill about thirty men of Israel. For they said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, And behold, the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. 
They surrounded Benjamin and pursued them without rest and trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, but they were caught, 5,000 of them, on the highways and overtook them at Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. And they remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. The men of Israel turned back again, the sons of Benjamin, and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. Now, we've seen the dangers of tribalism, and this section here brings us then to our second point for the evening, which is that might and right bring no guarantees. We've all heard before that might does not make right. That's certainly true. Just because you're strong doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. But here, we even find that one can have both might and right, and this does not guarantee the immediate outcome. Now, what we have in verses 18 through the first part of verse 36 is a history of, these, of this, this three-day battle, these three attempts by the Israelites to go up against the Benjaminites. And then from the second part of verse 36 on down to the end of the chapter, we have kind of an expanded version of the details of the final day of battle, day three of battle, and the ultimate defeat of Benjamin. And I think at least it's somewhat... Uh, somewhat difficult to decide which is more surprising, whether 25,000 plus Benjaminites, nearly the whole tribe, get wiped out on account of the wickedness of Gibeah, or whether it's the fact that 40,000 plus Israelites on the other side who had both might and right with them were killed in this attempt to execute justice on the Benjaminites. This was a bloodbath all around. Now, what is clear from the text is that the Israelites had might on their side, 400,000 men, and they were in the right. It's clear that the Lord sanctioned what they were doing. Day one, in verse 18, they asked the Lord who should go up first. The Lord answers, Judah should go up first. And they lose 22,000 men that day. They weep before the Lord until evening. They inquire again, verse 23, Shall we draw near for the battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And again the Lord says, Go up against him. He sanctions the battle. Day two of the battle also goes badly. 18,000 are killed. Again the people weep. This time though they offer sacrifices and they fast. They offer the burnt offerings, the peace offerings. And again they inquire whether they should go up again or cease. Verse 28, the Lord answers, Go up tomorrow, for I will deliver them into your hand. The Lord explicitly told them to, to go up. And as we find in verse 35, ultimately it was the Lord who struck Benjamin before Israel. And so ultimately, might and right are clearly on their side. They have the numbers. The men of Gibeah had done evil. The Benjaminites had only complicated the matter and, and upped the ante by rallying to the side of their kinsmen. The Lord explicitly told the Israelites to go up. But yet in the final body count, Israel lost more men than Benjamin did. 40,000 men in two days. Now what do we, 
What do we make of this? Well, we learn that might and right do not guarantee the outcome, at least not here on earth. Why did Israel suffer these losses? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, does it? The text doesn't answer the question, and so we're left to conjecture somewhat. Were they being punished for their sins? That's certainly possible. Had Israel allowed idolatry to take root in its midst unchallenged? Well, perhaps. Though the chronology is not given to us precisely, if we understand that that Levite priest of chapters 17 and 18, who was the priest of Micah and then the priest of the Danites, if we understand that to be the, the grandson of Moses, as chapter 18, verse 30 seems to indicate, then given that consideration and also the temporal marker here in verse 28, that these events occurred in the days of Phinehas, who's the grandson of Aaron, then it is certainly possible that the idolatry of Micah and the Danites had already broken out. In other words, that chapters 17 and 18 had already occurred by the time of these events in chapters 19 through 21. Phinehas and that idolatrous priest of the Danites would have been, would have been second cousins, right? Their, their grandfathers, Moses and Aaron, were brothers. Then you have a couple of generations, and then you have that Levite who goes off to be priest to, the Le- uh, to Micah and the Danites, and you have Phinehas being the legitimate priest here for Israel. These men would have been second cousins, assuming indeed that that man in chapter 18 was the grandson of Moses. And so perhaps, just perhaps, the death of 40,000 Israelites was on account of allowing idolatry to go on unchecked, leading many away from the true worship of God. Perhaps it was to be a reminder that even in the execution of doing what is good and right, they still needed to seek God and to ask His blessing upon their enterprise rather than just simply jumping in and doing it. And I think that this is a, this is a good warning for for, for all of us, to remember to ask God's blessing even when we know that what we're doing is right. Like, take, take me, for instance. I know that, uh, that God's word is true and that we're to proclaim it. That's, that's what I do for my job. But yet, nevertheless, I need to be reminded that instead of just, just doing the work and working it out and doing it, I need to ask for God's blessing upon this work that I know to be right and good. We're reminded in Ecclesiastes 9.11 that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Now to affirm that is not to deny God's providence, but rather to affirm that God's providence often works in ways that are contrary to what we would expect. And as a result, we must say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.21, let no one boast in men. We must agree with the word of the Lord spoken through Zechariah to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a good reminder that we need to all be seeking the Lord's grace, even in doing those things that we know are good and right. We need God's help rather than simply to rely on our own strength and our own assets and abilities. We need to be asking for for God's blessing upon us, even in doing those things that we know to be right and good. Now, another possibility for the reason things went down like this 
is, in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, the mystery of his ways. Israel receives the favor of divine guidance and yet sees no evidence of divine help. Does this not constitute one of the enigmas of Christian experience? Being certain of the divine will because a matter is clearly taught in Scripture and yet finding that path marked more by trouble than by success. Isn't that the way that it sometimes goes as believers? We know what is good and right. We put ourselves out there and we do it. And rather than having a path that is strewn with roses, it's strewn with thorns. Or if we may apply the words of Matthew Henry, we may be sure of the righteousness when we cannot see the reasons of God's proceedings. The interest of grace in the heart and of religion in the world may be foiled and suffer great loss and seem to be quite run down. But judgment will be brought to victory at last. Sometimes that's the way the Christian life works itself out. We know what is right and we do it and then things blow up in our faces and we're left to wonder what just happened there. It could be perhaps divine chastisement for some sin that we've committed, but not always necessarily so. Sufferings and persecutions, what we might call earthly failures, are not necessarily signs that we're doing the wrong thing or even a sign that we are being chastised for some sin in another area of our lives. We have no personal guarantees of earthly success. We're called to be faithful and to do what is right and then to allow the consequences to be what they will for good or for ill, according to the all-wise plan of God. Paul described his experience in 2 Corinthians 4, as we read at the uh, beginning of our time tonight, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And sometimes Christian faithfulness doesn't look particularly glamorous in the moment, right? These Israelites were being faithful here in executing judgment. This is what they were supposed to do. God told them to do it. And it didn't come off well, not in the first. And Paul's ministry was what he was supposed to be doing. He was persecuted, perplexed, struck down, and so on. Sometimes Christian faithfulness doesn't look particularly glamorous in the moment. But it is worthwhile to note here in Judges 20 that sometimes the defeat that we suffer may yet be sowing seeds for the final victory. Because on the, on the third day of the battle, the Israelites laid that ambush against Gibeah, which is somewhat reminiscent to what Joshua did back in Joshua chapter 8 against the, the city of Ai, if you remember that. And so they, they laid this, this ambush and they lured the, Gibeonite, or lured the Benjaminites away from, from Gibeah. And the Benjaminites were lured away because they thought the battle was going to go down just as it had the previous two days, right? They explicitly say that there in verse 32. We read the words of the Benjaminites, they are struck down before us as at the first. In other words, they're like, oh yeah, we've seen this two days before, this is a replay, we're going after them just like we did already. 
But they, of course, were, were terribly wrong in that. And sometimes an outward defeat is actually simply laying the ground for the future victory in the mystery of God's plan. In 1865, an American ship called the, the General Sherman sailed up the Taitong River in Korea, getting as far up as uh, the city of Pyongyang, thanks to the, the high tide. There were some areas of, of the river that they could, only, they could only be sailed up one time a month, and the, the tide was high enough for them to, uh, for them to sail up. But uh, problems came for the crew of the General Sherman on a fact that uh, account of the fact that they had detained five Koreans, two of whom had drowned, attempting to escape. And rumors were spread that the foreigners on board the General Sherman had come to do harm to the Koreans. And then when they, they tried to sail the ship back down the river to get away from Pyongyang, they, they could not. The ship was trapped. And the Koreans, uh, who were very exasperated to say the least, linked up a bunch of fishing boats together and tied them together with, with an iron chain piled high with some pine brush, set them on fire, and sent them to surround the General Sherman and set the General Sherman on fire, which it did. And those on board had no choice but to jump into the river and to swim to the shore where there were armed Koreans waiting to kill them. On board the General Sherman was a 25-year-old Welshman named Robert Thomas, he was an agent of the London Missionary Society, armed with Bibles and gospel tracts for the Korean people. Robert Thomas made his way to shore reportedly with his arms full of books, which he tried to thrust into the arms of the people who were waiting to kill him. And one missionary to Korea later recorded that though the officials in Pyongyang sought to gather and burn all the Bibles which Mr. Thomas left at various places along the river and tossed to the crowd as he died at the river's edge, many copies were concealed and read later in secret. And 27 years later, when the American Presbyterians began their mission work in Korea, one of the early men to receive Christian instruction in preparation for baptism was the son of a man who had received one of those Bibles that Robert Thomas had either handed out or given away. Somehow this man's father came in to possession of one of those and then his son later goes to receive instruction for baptism. Point is, what do we know of success or failures? How can we tell this side of glory which is which? Sometimes it's going to be pretty hard to tell. And so brothers and sisters, what this means is we have to keep Ongoing. We have to just keep on doing right according to the word of God. By all means, let's be tender and sensitive to our own sin. Let's repent of it when we are so convicted. And let's keep going, persevering in what is true and what is right. And let's take to heart afresh those words of Hebrews 12, where the writer says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right, of, right hand of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Christ who endured such hostility against him. To all appearance, that was the end of the Christ. That was the end of this man who claimed to be the Messiah when he died on the cross. 
But that was actually the greatest victory, the cross and the subsequent resurrection. And the writer of the Hebrews says, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And we have the blessed promise of Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So may Christ strengthen us and sustain us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are in control. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust you, help us to persevere in obedience, even when everything seems to be going wrong. Lord, we pray that you would help us to always have tender hearts, always be quick to repent when we are wrong, when we are sinful. But Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would stay the course, even in difficult times, and that we would do right even when external circumstances are all against us. Help us, Lord, to be fully convinced of your truth and of your commands, and let us persevere and walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.